tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Happy Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. And I, I have a feeling today is going to be extra incoherent. I, I, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about, and I'm, I feel like I'm in a wrestling ring with an idea, and I can't figure out which way to approach it. But that's all right. Uh, for some reason, when I was in high school, wrestling was always right after lunch. It was awful. It was too, Well, let's, why should I bother with my problems? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right, let's, let's, uh, uh, yes, that's it, the big book on the coffee table. Oh, oh dear. Today's the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, kind of an odd Christmas season because it was shortened, We, you know, with the, it was the fourth Sunday of Advent, then boom, Christmas, um, and now it was the Epiphany, and boom, Baptism of the Lord, and, but that's all right. It's a so lot of yada, yada, yada. It's a lot of yada yada, exactly. That's that's true, dear voice in my head. Well, the the thing I I just want to zero in on this. Uh the the gospel today uh at the USCCB uh uh site. I that's where I go for the gospel, you know. How come we read this gospel in my church today and we didn't read that gospel? Well, there are variations of the feast. This is a this is an important solemnity. Uh so uh it's standard. There are options for the other readings, but the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops site. If you want to know the authoritative readings for the day, go there. And Matthew 1, 7 to 11 is the reading for today's feast, for today's solemnity. This is what John the Baptist proclaimed. One mightier than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop or loosen the thongs of his sandals. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit. First of all, the phrase, the word, baptism in the Holy Spirit, does not appear in the New Testament. To baptize with the Holy Spirit does appear. The verb, not the not. Well, big deal. It is a big deal. I think it is a very big deal because, um, well, all right. Fasten your seatbelts if you're driving. You're going to have to hear some history, some American history. 
The American colonies, especially in the North, were established by and large by people who were fleeing um, religious persecution in England. Not religious persecution by Catholics, but religious persecution by the um, monarchy of England, who had established the Church of England, and they did not want dissenters. They did not want people, they, they really believed that you had to have unity of religion, to have unity of government and society. And so uh, these very different expressions of Christianity, such as Calvinism and Presbyterianism and, and uh, Puritanism and all those, Quakerism, all these isms, they felt threatened the unity of the nation. And frankly, the jury is still out in that. Um, if you're going to have a society, can you have a society which has uh, varying religious beliefs? We'll, we'll see. Um, there are a lot of countries that don't think so. But I'm, that's not what I want to get into. What I want to talk about is the, the nature of pre-U.S. government, uh, pre-constitutional government in the United States, the governments of the founding colonies, especially in the north of the United, what is now United States. In order to have civil rights, you had to be a member of the congregation. This was a very important thing. You had to be one of the chosen. Now, the northern states, such as Massachusetts and Rhode Island, well, I, these were founded by followers of John Calvin. And Calvin believed in double predestination. Double predestination was... Uh, uh, the belief that God had chosen certain people to go to heaven to show his mercy and certain people to go to hell for uh, to show his justice. It, the God of Calvin, to me, always seems to make Adolf Hitler look like a campfire girl. I mean, this idea that God created people for the express uh, purpose of punishing them eternally, I don't see that in Scripture, and I certainly don't see it in the person of Jesus. However... This made it very important that the government was a government of saints. And in order to have civil rights in one of these colonies, you had to prove election, which meant in certain places you'd have to go before a board of elders or deacons and say, well, I'm saved because while I was walking in the woods and I felt this warming of my heart and I knew that I was saved, you're in. I mean, these were very frequently very subjective uh, criteria for salvation. Uh, uh, that was to give evidence of salvation. That was the phrase. This idea sticks in the American conscious, consciousness in, in ideas like, are you saved? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Well, this morning, yeah, today I reject, I rejected him about 11, but then I went to confession and I reeks. That's our Catholic approach. That, that, that we are always free to accept or reject. But the Calvinist approach is you're, if you're in, you're in. You know, that Calvin called that the, the, the uh, oh gosh, the, uh, the perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. Uh, I think Luther believed it, but I know Calvin believed it. And Calvinists really believe that you can't get unsaved once you're saved. If you're saved, you can't get unsaved. The will of God will not be contravened, whereas we Catholics realize we have a humble God, and he'll let us depart from him when and if we choose. 
If you're in, you're in. That's now. This is a good Calvinist would probably argue with me theologically, but this is kind of the the meaning that people um, take from it. Um, once saved, always saved. Now, therefore, it is very important in this mindset to have this conversion experience. And I believe in conversion. I really do. Uh, I always say the only real Catholic is a convert. If you're not a convert, you're not a real Catholic. You have to allow God to turn your thinking and your life and your actions around. But that's what we mean by conversion, the the lifelong process of conforming ourselves to the image of Christ. What is he talking about? Well... In 1900, a bunch of Methodists in, I believe it was Topeka, Kansas, had a Bible college. And uh, one of the preoccupations in Methodism in the end of the 19th century was called the Second Blessing or the Perfecting Blessing, where you, you finally were perfected by the Holy Spirit. And they were talking about this. And uh, they had this powerful experience of the Holy Spirit that resulted with them manifesting the Holy Spirit with gifts of tongues and prophecy and all these things. If you want to go into that, actually a very fine book is John Cheryl's book. They speak with other tongues about it. There are a lot of good books on it, but that really is where that ball got rolling. And uh, really the, the Azusa street church in Los Angeles, it really, really got rolling there. And that kind of, uh, chugged along until the late 60s, in which it kind of seeped into the Episcopalian Church and through Episcopalians into the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the odd things about this whole movement was it it didn't it it, it well it is not foreign to Catholic spirituality. In fact, is this this strain of spirituality and Protestantism comes from a rediscovery of medieval Catholic sources. Another thing I don't have time to go into. However, this idea of proof of election seeped into the early non-Catholic Pentecostal movement. I don't know if you're following me, but I think this is a very important thing, not only for our life as Christians, but for our understanding of the religious situation in our in, in the world and in the country. I mean, Pentecostalism is the fastest growing dimension of Christianity or of any religion probably in the world at the moment. This is, this is big stuff in certain parts of the world, like Africa. Back, let me back up. Remember, giving evidence of salvation. Well, a problem came up. The, the, the uh, early Pentecostals were universally rejected from the low churches because they didn't believe in all that mysticism. Uh, that was too Catholic. And so uh, they decided to have a conference in, I think it was uh, Springfield, Arkansas. And there was a group that said, God wants us to form the perfect church, a perfect spirit-filled church. That was, they formed the Assemblies of God. Then there was a group that said, God doesn't need a new church. He doesn't want us to form a church. And they formed the Independent Assemblies of God. I'm not making this up. Well, the problem was the Bible clearly says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 13 or is it 12? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 
And you, if you can't say Jesus is Lord, well, then you're not saved. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, can you truly say Jesus is Lord? And if you don't speak in tongues, can you truly say that you have the Holy Spirit? By this point, it's nonsense. I really believe it. It's nonsense. This, there, are, there are groups that believe if you have not spoken once in your life in tongues, you're going to hell. I have a friend who became a Catholic because he never spoke in tongues. And, well, it was go to hell or be a Catholic. I'm, I'm being facetious a little bit. But, but that was really the radicalness of his family's belief. It is nonsense. The idea of giving evidence for election by speaking in tongues is a reduction to the absurd of this whole phenomenon. Now, this idea of baptism in the Holy Spirit, people talk about having the baptism in the Holy Spirit, kind of a one-time pivotal experience, and I do not think that that is real at all. The so-called baptism in the Holy Spirit, as I mentioned, is not mentioned in Scripture. To be baptized in the Holy Spirit is, well, verb, noun, big deal, very big deal. Because you see, in our life, we have different encounters with the Holy Spirit. And that is to allow, let's look at the word, the words in Greek, of course. To baptize means to immerse, to dunk. Holy Spirit, well, you know the word spirit in Greek is pneuma, it means breath. To be dunked in the holy breath. What? does that mean? I remember hearing someone I was talking to and they said, breath, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's breath, the father, he's the guy with the long white beard, Jesus, he's the guy with the shorter brown beard, but the Holy Spirit, is it a dove, a fire, a wind? The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. I, it's not a good theological definition, but maybe it's a, a good practical definition. The Holy Spirit is the, is the, is the presence of God. He's the glory cloud. He, he is the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of God's presence and is fully a person able to speak and to listen. This idea, what is a person? A person is someone who has a voice. And the Holy Spirit speaks. Okay, <clears throat> now this said, to be immersed in the presence of God, this happens if you allow it to happen. And what I really want to say is this, this being immersed in the presence of God, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, is not the property of a movement. It is not the property of one denomination or another. It, in a sense, is the property of the Father and the Son. You know, a lot of people, Jews, Muslims, our fellow monotheists, look at us and think we are not monotheists. Uh, uh, we have three gods, and at least three gods is better than a thousand. That is not true. We have one God who is a trinity of persons. Let me give a sidebar and simply explain the trinity very simply. And he says, oh, the trinity's a mystery. Yeah, it's a secret. In that sense, it's a mystery. But if you believe one thing that Jesus taught, the Holy Trinity makes perfect and reasonable sense. If you believe that God is sacrificial love, then the Holy Trinity is not a difficult thing to understand because if God is sacrificial love, 
Who in timeless reality, in eternity, is God going to love? Well, he loves us as creatures. That would mean that God can't exist without us. He then would not be God. No, he includes us in that love. We're to be brought into the Trinity as those adopted into a family. But within God, there is perfect diversity and perfect oneness so that God might be love. The Father and Son love each other perfectly and sacrificially, so perfectly that they are one in being. And the third person of the Trinity is their very love, the Holy Spirit. Light from light, God from God, as we say of Jesus. The Trinity makes perfect sense if you believe that God is relationship, perfect love. That said, we encounter the Holy Spirit in our lives if we allow him to wash over us. I have known so many people who didn't go to a prayer meeting, didn't go to a seminar, they didn't go to a meeting, but they just sat there and the third person of the Trinity showed up and, as it were, washed them in his in his holiness. They were overwhelmed by the the presence of God. To be baptized means to be washed over, to be immersed. And it is not a normative experience. It isn't a proof experience. It isn't evidence of anything except God's goodness to sinners like me and you. This idea of being washed over by the Holy Spirit. Why am I pushing this? Because we don't have a Trinitarian religion. We talk about the Father and the Son and, well, the Holy Spirit. I guess. I read it in the Catechism. And I want to ask you, have you encountered the third person of the Trinity? Do you have a relationship with the third person of the Trinity? Because if you don't, you're not living a fully Trinitarian life. Uh, It doesn't mean you're going to hell. It doesn't mean anything like that. In fact, I would maintain that the first person of the Trinity you meet is the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord. Not was Lord, but is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. You go into a quiet church and you sense the presence of God as the Holy Spirit, who makes Jesus uh, living in the tabernacle uh, um, uh, available to you. You look at a beautiful sunset, you hear a beautiful song, and it lifts your heart and mind to God. That presence of God that you're sensing, again, not a good theological definition, but I think a very good practical one, that's the Holy Spirit, the sensed presence, the breathing of God. If someone gets close enough to you to breathe so that you can, you can, you know, in the Song of Songs, it talks about the sweetness of my lover's breath. You get close enough to someone that, 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 you can smell the sweetness of their breath, please God. You can hear their breathing, hear the beating of their heart. Oh gosh, I got so much more to say about this. Maybe I'll talk about it a little more. Well, what, what are we doing? Well, let me talk just a little bit more about it. Well, you're saying I don't have the Holy Spirit. Yes, you may have the Holy Spirit. I'm not concerned about whether you have the Holy Spirit. I'm concerned about whether the Holy Spirit has you. You know, the, the, the disciples did not receive the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. What? Of course they did. Well, well, then why did Jesus come into the upper room on Easter Sunday night and say he breathed on them? The Holy Spirit proceeded from him breathing. Why did, why did he say receive the Holy Spirit 
whose sins you forgive are forgiven. The apostles received the indwelling spirit, giving them faith that it was truly Jesus risen. Well, if they received the Holy Spirit on Easter, what they receive on Pentecost? The outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit. They received the outward sign of the indwelling spirit. They'd received saving faith on Easter Sunday, but they received an apostolate, a calling, a mission. And that's what this being baptized in the Holy Spirit is about. When the Holy Spirit comes knocking on your door, it's because he got a job for you to do. It isn't so you can have a wonderful uh, experience of goosebumps and fall over. It isn't so that you can be assured of your salvation. It isn't so that you can give evidence of salvation. I believe to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is a calling from God. And again, it is not the property of a movement. It is not the property of an individual or of a guru or anything like that. It is the property of the Father and Son who sends the Holy Spirit to, 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 to shove us out, to send us out in a mission. And this is an essential part of our faith, this, this relationship to the third person of the Trinity. And, and so, I, again, I'll end this, this harangue by saying, have you met the third person of the Trinity? Yes, you have. You may not have recognized it as such, but you probably have. If you love Jesus, you met the Holy Spirit. He's the one who drew you to Christ. But have you allowed the Holy Spirit to wash over you, to immerse you in holy breath? Doesn't happen once in life. It happens as often as God wills and you will welcome it. So, and if you have never experienced this being bathed in God's presence. Say, Lord, I give you my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit to overflowing. Okay, that's enough. Let's move on. We'll read some letters when we get back, and we will um, open the phones at 888-914-9149. Oh, a waltz. 888-914-9149. If you are in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at relevantradio.com slash forester. Well, I don't know about that. That uh, was a good old, uh, uh, a good old hippie song. I remember it well from my youth. Oh, good grief! All right, let's go to letters. Well, this is kind of a fun letter. Um, this is from Lisa in California. Have you personally ever heard the confession of a non-Catholic? If I had, I I don't believe I could tell you. There's something called the seal of confession. And I got another letter asking about the holy seal. And this is not to do with aquatic animals. The seal of confession is, I think, one of the best ideas we've come up with in, in a zillion years. I, you know... I, well, I'll try and click away while I while I talk. Uh, the seal of confession is is does not go back to apostolic times. 
However, it is absolutely essential. And that means that not only can I not share what I hear in confession, I cannot use the information. It's very solemn. And it isn't just priests who are bound by it. Uh, um, the, uh, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 uh, confirmed the idea of the secrecy of confession. Let the priest absolutely beware that he does not, by word or sign or by any manner whatever, in any way betray the sinner. If it should happen to need wiser counsel, let him cautiously seek the same without mention of person. Whoever will dare to reveal a sin disclosed to him in the tribunal of penance, we decree that he shall be not only deposed from priestly office, but that he shall also be sent into the confinement of a monastery to do perpetual penance. That's uh, from the Fourth Council of the Lateran in 1215. And, and that's, that's really when we began to, to really push it. Uh, clearly, it had begun to evolve earlier. But the seal of confession means not only can I not share the information I get, I cannot use it. If you were to give me a hot stock tip in, in confession, I couldn't invest in it. You'd have to give it to me after. In fact is, I can't even talk to you about what you tell me in confession. You can talk to me about it, but I can't talk to you. If I hear information outside the confessional, all bets are off within prudence. But if I hear something in the sacrament of confession, I cannot repeat it. I could repeat it in a general way. Like I, I might say, well, people come into me and they confess the sins of their spouses and children. That's not breaking the seal of confession. But if I say this woman came into me and she told me that her husband did this, this, and this, that would be breaking the seal of confession. And it is a solemn thing. I, I, I believe still that, that if a priest willingly and, and clearly breaks the seal of the confessional, he can only be absolved uh, um, by, uh, uh, or he can only be reinstated by 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 Rome, by the Pope. You know, now I've I've known people who will come to confession and confess something, and then I'll get up and I'll say in the pulpit, I'll have a sermon prepared already about the evils of uh, of, of of embezzlement. He's talking about my confession. No, I'm talking about the sin of embezzlement. That's not, I'm not talking about your confession. If I got him said, Mrs. Smith came in and she's a big embezzler, <laughs> well, that would be breaking the seal. But, but uh, uh, you know, I think some people, I've known some people who are so very paranoid about, about things that they, they assume. But I've never known a priest who willingly and freely broke the seal of confession. In fact, as I remember being when we were young priests, there was uh, at some gathering and some priests seem to be going in that direction. Everybody just quietly got up and left the table. I mean, we take it very seriously. So um, <clears throat> moving along here. Uh, um, so that's the seal of confession. I can't even use the information, much less share it. Now, let's get back to the letter. All right. Was this, so the seal of confession... Uh, I have two questions regarding the seal of confession. The first is easy. Am I the penitent bound by the same or any similar seal? Not, no, you are free to share the details of your life with anyone uh, with whom you choose. Uh, but one of the reasons the seal of confession was introduced was so that you could come to the confessional with great confidence uh, of anonymity. So 
But no, you're you're free to share details of your life. However, if you are standing close to a confessional and there's there's someone in the confessional who's deep as a stone, bless me, Father, I blew up a building. You know, did you see the building blew up a building? That would you are as bound by the seal of confession. If you overhear something said outside of a in the sacrament of confession while you're standing outside the confessional. You are as bound by the seal of confession as I am. That's important to understand. So this the seal of confession. That's why when someone asked me if I'd ever heard a Protestant's confession, I have no idea if I've heard a Protestant's confession or not. I genuinely mean that. I don't know. I, I if I had, I'd forgotten it. You know, I forget a lot of things. That's a great a great uh, asset. Talking about the Holy Seal. Uh, so I, I think it's very important that we understand that. Um, and and uh, realize that if you hear some priest talking about, uh, uh, oh, let's gossip, the sin of gossip. Well, I just went to confession a week ago, and I confessed gossip. Clearly, he's breaking the seal of confession. Don't take that lightly, because <laughs> you know don't don't make those accusations lightly. And if there's a problem, you talk to. The priest, Father, were you were you talking about my confession? No, of course I wasn't. I was talking about my own confession. I love to gossip, you know that sort of thing. So, uh, this is something the the sacrament of con, of penance is is something not taken lightly. Now, in the early church, there was no seal of confession because you confess publicly before the congregation, and essentially you were allowed to go to confession once in the earliest church. It seems, at least that's what I was taught, and um, uh, it was. Uh, 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 for the big sins, you know, adultery, murder, that sort of thing, idolatry. Uh, but uh, uh, for the well-being of the sacrament and the anonymity and protection of people, uh, it, it was extended in, in the, it began to happen in the early Middle Ages. All right. Uh, let's see. Okay, let me click on that. And okay, where was I? All right, I got one here that, Okay, this is this is from uh, an anonymous person in Illinois. Loud children in mass is not a problem. The problem is that the newer churches, and she quotes me, <laughs> spaceships from the planet ugly, as you would say, spend too much money on weird things like resurrection crucifixes and not enough money on a decent sound system. I was recently at a 140-year-old country church for a funeral mass. The acoustics were better than my parish, which was built 20 years ago. You know, that is really true, that... We've gotten so accustomed to uh, 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 amplification. I, people would complain about, Father, I can't hear this sermon. I'm using the microphone. It's a odd sound system. They, well, come up into the front. No, I sit in the back pew. Well, then then you must not want to hear the sermon. You know, uh, uh, I, I kid. I kid. But, um, you know, that... that uh, uh, we've gotten very used to amplification, and uh, we, the clergy, sometimes need to figure out how to preach in a way that that uh, everyone can hear loudly and slowly. All right, just that's a thought. Yes, crying children are not a problem. Uh, um, it's it's a sign that there's hope for the church and the future. Okay, let's see here. Let me get another one here. What time is it? Oh, one more. I, I can't figure this out. I, I'm, I looked and I looked. Our Catholic Bible shows 17 verses in Psalm 81, yet the Protestant 
Bible shows 18. I looked at another Bible that had 16, both with the word Jehovah. You know, the problem is one of, it's a textual problem, that the King James Bible, I believe, was translated from something called the Textus Receptus, the received text, which was the the text of Scripture uh, in the Codex, uh, or in the version that, that we found in Constantinople, the capital of the later Roman Empire. We also have the Codex Vaticanus, the Vatican uh, uh, copy of, of the, the scriptures in, in Greek and, and in, in uh, I think, was that all? In, I'd have to look. I think it was Greek and Hebrew. But the Textus Receptus might have been different than the Codex from which uh, another translation was made. And this really upsets people because I just want the real Bible. Good luck with that. And that's why God, one of the reasons God gave us a church to, to ensure that doctrine would, would be guarded. And, uh, uh, that's, that's the task of the church to, to, um, keep things doctrinally on track. Remember line and verse did not exist before 1550. I believe it was first employed in the Geneva Bible. Chapters came in in the second or third century. But uh, I think second century, or no, third century, the 200s. Uh, but but verses, those were not, didn't, there was no Bible that had verses, as far as I know, before the Geneva Bible around 1550, which was a Calvinist version of the Bible. So the way it was written, there was no verse 16, 17, or 18. There was just the psalm. Uh, and um, the codex or the, the version from which we got our translation had a different numbering of the Psalms than the ones that was used by, by Protestants in the Reformation. So I don't know that that's a very satisfying answer. I'm, I tried to look these up. I'm just going to have to get different Bibles and put them side by side and see what's going on. And maybe I can answer it uh, more intelligently, but it's, it's a matter of, of which text and how that text was numbered that determines whether it's 16 verses, 17 verses, or 18 verses. Disappointing, but, well, hey, what are you going to do? All right, we're going to go to a break. We will come back with uh, Word of the Day, of course. And uh, the phones are open, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Plenty of lines open. Network sponsor TimeBank can make remote account opening easy. No matter where you are in the country, they offer mobile and online banking and knowledgeable bankers that answer the phone. More information at time.bank. That's time.bank. Member FDIC. Train Holy Roller. Well, you know, the congregation will turn to hymn number 82 and roll on the floor. Moving along. You know, it's, 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 you go to a good old Pentecostal prayer meeting and it's different. You know, I don't know that it's, uh, it's to everyone's taste, but, you know, at any rate, I, that's not what I want to talk about. I want to go to the word of the day. The word of the day is, well, once again, baptism. 
and I got a letter asking me about um, uh, uh, this is from Matt. Uh, asking, is it true that in Jesus' time only converts to Judaism would be baptized, that no one in Judaism would even contemplate baptism? Well, it depends what you mean. Jews have something called a ritual bath called a mikveh, which uh, you walk, it's kind of like a confession without a priest. You got all the schmutz and dreck on you. That means uh, schmutz and dreck. What, how do you say schmutz and dreck in English? You got all the garbage on you from... Uh, from um, the world in which you live. I remember a Jewish friend once said, oh, I need a mikveh. That 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 you would go into the mikveh, down one set of stairs, crouch in a fetal position in the water, and then come up another uh, uh, set of stairs. And you've left all of the, the schmutz and dreck in the water. Uh, you're purified. Um, and there are certain uh, things that after which uh, an Orthodox Jew just routinely goes to a mikveh. And and um, uh, that's a kind of baptism they have. But they do have a baptism that's involved in conversion, that if you are a convert to Jew, you do undergo a baptism. If, if For instance, if, if you have a, a child, you're a Jewish man, and you marry a non-Jewish woman, and you have a child, and you want to raise that child Jewish, that child must undergo what they call conversion. And it, it is involved a, a kind of mikveh. So they do have a kind of baptism, but this is correct. It's only for people entering Judaism that they have that that uh, that conversion baptism, as I understand it. If I am wrong, I, I certainly hope to be corrected. Um. The problem with John the Baptist's baptism was he was baptizing people who didn't need baptism. They were already in like Flynn because they were descended from Abraham. And what John was saying is, no, you know, God is God, as Jesus said elsewhere in the Gospels, God is able to raise up uh, sons to Abraham from these very stones. Uh, that that God has no grandchildren. You can't be Catholic because you're Irish or Polish or Italian or Bavarian. No, you got to be Catholic because it's true. You don't inherit the faith. You can inherit the culture of faith, and parents and grandparents can be, can and should be very influential in bringing their families to Christ. But God has no grandchildren. Your sons and daughters are God, not His grandchildren. You're not going to go to heaven because your grandma was pious. You must make the decision for Christ and for His bride, the Church, yourself. And that's what John, baptizing people who didn't need baptism, I think, was saying. And above all, Jesus didn't need baptism, but. Where the shepherd go, goes the sheep follow. All right, let's go to phones. This is smart. Maxwell's smart. Deacon Chris from Hampshire, what can I do for you? Got a quick question, Father. At the end of every decade in the rosary, we do the glory be. In yes. the liturgy of the hours, at the end of every psalm, we do the glory be, a slightly yes. different variation of the same prayer. But now I've noticed at the end of—I um, just recently noticed this—at the end of Mass, or at the end of the Our Father at Mass, for thine is the kingdom, the glory, and the power of yours now and forever. That's very similar, has the same connotation, the same message as the glory be. I was wondering if you could tell me that— these are connected in some certain way, or why is it that that doxology is stated when it is all, you know, in the psalm, at the end of the rosary, at the uh, at the end of the Our Father? Well, it's, it's oh gosh, that, that's a tough one, but um, uh, the doxology in the Our Father, I can pontificate a little bit about that. The That is from a text. I think that is from the... Uh, uh, 
uh, from the, uh, the the Texas Receptus that that it's 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 added in the constant Constantinopolitan version of the scriptures, and it was not in the uh, the the texts that we use. It was added after the Vatican Council by the liturgical movement to kind of make nice with the. Uh, um, with the um, with the non-Catholics, however, the Didache. I, you, I'm sure you know what the Didache, the teaching of the twelve apostles, a book probably written about 100 A.D. Some people say much earlier, some people say later. Probably, but 90 to 100 A.D. is probably realistic, or even 110 A.D. But it's a very early document written probably in Syria. It in the Didache there is a version. Uh, uh, um, of the Our Father, that ends with the 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 minor doxology. That's what it's it's called, uh, and that's mm-hmm. the glory be to the Father, to the Son, of the Holy Spirit. So there there is a relationship um, that that in the early church in the East they added that minor doxology. Doxology is a word of praise, and and mm-hmm. it's added uh, in Greek uh, to the. Uh, to the Syriac version of of the uh, of the Our Father, so I think so. Are there any yeah, there is. I would say there is a relationship. Is is there also any relation, maybe that comes uh, pre Christianity? You know, kind of like Job, blessed be the name of the Lord, kind of a thing. You know, I, I don't know. It's I, I would I would have to really study that because, of course, the idea of a Trinity is certainly not not pre Christian. Uh, it's reflected in the scriptures we believe, but but uh, a good Orthodox rabbi would would disagree mm-hmm. with me on that. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's uh, the idea of blessing the Lord. Uh, you know, and and what does it mean to bless? To favor? To favor the Lord by as- ascribing glory to Him? You know, that is Old Testament biblical, but um, mm-hmm. we kind of. We kind of soup it up with the Trinity. I don't know if this is answering your question at all, but um, the doxology goes way back. Yeah, the doxology—that's a polite way to say it. (laughs) But yeah, it—it the doxology does go back to the first century, uh, and it was particularly seems to be particularly common in the East, and thus in the Eastern version of the Our Father, it seems to have been added in the text. The way Jesus said it, well, the Holy Spirit says it both ways. So there you go. I hope that helps a little. You bet. All right. Thanks for calling in, Dean Chris. Good to hear your voice. All right. Let's go to Emily. God bless. Let's go to Emily from Ashburn, Virginia. Are you with us? Hi, Father Simon. How are you? Hi. What can I do for you? I'm good. I'm good. Good. Um, So I I have nine children, and my husband... And is committed to Catholic education, and I mean mm-hmm. I am too, but I also get frustrated because of um, the fact that you know most people that attend to attend private school. It's a it's a matter of resources, you know. Yeah. And I feel like I feel like I'm, you know, com- you know, competing above my weight grade with like. Mm-hmm. All these helicopter parents, you know. Yeah. And well, I guess I was calling for encouragement and also for resources. I, I will encourage like, you. 
I, I will encourage you. Definitely, I will encourage you. Now, do you homeschool or, or not? Oh, I want to homeschool. I'm mm-hmm. pro homeschooling. I mean, it yeah. makes more sense logistically. But my yeah. but my husband wants to do, you know, diocesan well, private yeah. Catholic school, which is like well, what, a what, line great. <laughs> what I would do, you and your husband together, I would I would kind of have regular meetings with the kids about about what they're learning. Now. I will give you a word of encouragement. Um, I have a theory that artificial birth control uh, created a situation in which children were, are actually more neglected than, than the children in large families. Because, you see, uh, after the war, I call it, uh, let me look at the, I got time. because this, I, I, this I'm glad you called in because this is something I really want to share. I was the youngest of seven. Uh, and my parents were not helicopter parents by any means, especially by the time I got around, I came around. But, you know, the idea, I call it Scarlett O'Hara syndrome. I don't know if you've seen Gone with the Wind, but the scene in which Scarlett O'Hara lifts a potato she's just dug out of the ground and says, I swear as God is my witness, I will never be hungry again. People came back from the war and the depression, and they they weren't going to put their kids through what they'd been through. We're going to limit the size of our family, have a couple kids, and really give them everything we didn't have. Well, what that ended up is they got them a nanny or an au pair, and they went on vacation to Cancun. And the children, you know, it, I think in many cases, the smaller family ended up with neglected children who who just so much need our attention, which is why kids now in this second or third generation of neglected children of small families, they... they uh, uh, Mom, I'm secretly a woman, or I'm secretly. A, oh, I feel for. You. And that, I find that young people today are so in need of attention; uh, they're desperately lonely. The loneliness of children is so enhanced. You got nine kids. How old is your oldest? Sixteen. How old is it? A girl or a boy? I have a a boy that's sixteen. Yeah. And And how old is the oldest girl? Fifteen. Okay. And how old is the youngest? Um, He's five months. I was raised as much by my older brothers and sisters as I was by my parents. My sister Nancy was a second mother. I have a theory that if you have three kids, that's as much chaos as you can notice. And the kids, your children will not be neglected. They will, they will have your love, your husband's love, and the love, uh, and the love and the yelling and the, and the critiquing and the, the slapping upside the head of their older siblings, will they not? And that's I mean, okay, you, you know, because like everybody wonderful. else is so perfect, and I know it's a lie. Like, I know it's just... It's a, a total lie. Yeah, yeah, their kids are going to live their life off handheld computers and, and, and uh, <laughs> smartphones and whatever gizmo comes around next, and they're going to be lonely. Your kids are going to know how to relate to large numbers of people and, and hold their own. You know, they will, they will be disciplined regularly by, Ma said you can't do that, you know, that kind of thing. So I encourage you, you know, enjoy, enjoy. I mean, that's right. You know, That's what we're supposed to do. That was the whole thing yes. is joy to the world, not, not, you know, I don't know. I definitely yeah, not, oh. I needed to call you, and I was yes, like, you well, please. Call me straight. 
I am the youngest of seven, and believe me, I got slept upside the head, not by my parents, but by my brothers and sisters, and I needed it. My, my parents never needed to discipline us physically. They knew we had uh, siblings. So I can still remember my sister Paula whacking me over the head with her little plastic purse. <laughs> you know, that, that, uh, that, that no, you, this is an investment in the future. And, and uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, oh, dear. Well, let me look at the time. You know, that psalm, I always wanted to. About it. May your children be like olive plants around your table. What? You're calling my kids potted plants? <laughs> What's, what does that mean, olive plants around your table? An olive tree does not yield any fruit for the first 15 years, and you don't really get a harvest for the first 30 years, as I've heard. You're not going to get anything out of those kids till they're 15, and then they may, they may actually say hello to you and and uh, and acknowledge your your existence, uh, but. It's when they're 30. I, I feel so sorry for these people, two children. One of them goes off to pursue his 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 destiny somewhere in the Himalayas, and the other's a hairdresser in San Francisco, and they write for Christmas. You know, you're going to be tormented by the loving presence of children and grandchildren, and your life will have had meaning. For the rest meaning. of my life. And that's, yeah. Well, but now, yeah. I Thank you. I'm, you, you were also so generous with your time with me, so I'm really grateful and I love, I well, really appreciate everything you've said. One, one more thing. And, you know, I'm talking as the youngest of seven. It's amazing I learned to walk. My feet never touched the floor. I was carried around constantly by my <laughs> my sister's girlfriends. But uh, just a, a, a little addendum. I think you really need to be talking to your kids about their faith. You know, that, that to sit down and say, all right, we're having a family meeting. What are you learning in religion class? One by one. And not to critique what they're learning, just so that you're part of the conversation. The one thing homeschool really, we had, when I, when I was, uh, pastoring, we had, uh, a religion class, but communion was homeschool because it got the parents involved in a conversation with their children about, uh, about their faith. And, you know, most parents say, well, I send my kid to religion class. He doesn't believe any of this stuff. What happened? Did you ever talk to your kid about his faith? You know, that the right. faith should be a, a conversation in the family. So make sure that's happening. If you have to have a couple family meetings a week or something like that, you know, ask your kids and, and, and your husband should ask the kids. I think it's particularly his job. What are you learning in religion class? Nothing. What do you mean nothing? We're paying this money. You better be learning something. You know, I, I would, no, I would do that. Because so. I can quote you. I can quote you and it'll be good. <laughs> well, careful, careful. Yeah. Take what I say with a grain no, of salt. No, no, so. Only good. Only good. I'd only mean that. Only good. Funny. All right. I only mean uh, I'm kidding you. Oh, uh, there's music and Drew's coming up. He's worth listening to, too. You know, he's, he's a smart cookie. All right. I, I, being the youngest of seven, this is something that is dear to my heart. So God bless you, Emily. God bless all of you. And I hope your new year is unfolding beautifully. So far mine is. I'm going to take a nap shortly.